The Driven Radio Show. Your talk show for all things automotive. From the latest news to the greatest views. And the biggest names in rolling iron. Your host is Brett Hatfield, freelance auto journalist, senior auction analyst for Sports Car Market Magazine and American Car Collector Magazine, writer and editor of ReadTheDriven.com. And owner of his own small but growing fleet of cool cars. Get behind the wheel of an hour of car toss starting right now. Thank you for listening to Driven Radio. We know your time is valuable, so we work hard to bring you the best in automotive content and interviews. You can listen to us online at readthedriven.com, on iTunes, Pippa, Stitcher, Google Play, and everywhere fine podcasts are heard. Please follow us on Facebook at forward slash Driven Radio Show, on Twitter at Driven Radio Show, and on Instagram at Read the Driven. We're coming to you from Driven Studios in Kansas City's historic West Bottoms. I'm your host, Brett Hatfield, without my usual co-host, Vern Estes, who's surely stalking rare Shelbys at the Meekum Collector Car Auction in Indy this weekend. Uh, Vern, best of luck, buddy. Hope you bring home something fun. Coming up this week, we have news of a tragic fire that claimed a number of classic cars from the early 90s, the sale of the world's oldest Porsche, and a factory-certified maintenance program from Ferrari. Our special guest this week is McPherson College Associate Professor and friend of the show, Luke Chennel. Let's see what's in the news this week. Disaster struck the set of an HBO miniseries last Thursday morning when a number of classic Chevrolet models burned to the ground. A fire broke out at a recreated Chevy dealership, which sourced a number of cars from real owners. The fire destroyed all but one of the cars on the set. Automobile Magazine reported on the fire, which happened in Ellenville, New York. So far, 12 vehicles are counted as total losses. They include several Corvettes, Camaros, a C1500 pickup, a special edition 454 SS pickup, and a rare 1990 Chevrolet Beretta GT Indy edition. Uh, a photo provided to Motor Authority by jur- auto journalist Jamie Kitman shows the 1990 Beretta on the set before the fire. Uh, Kitman owns a company that rented a lot of the cars to the series, and he said the Beretta vehicle was the most damaged of the bunch. It's not yet clear what caused the fire, but it started around 12.45 a.m. The dealership, which was being used as a set for the HBO miniseries I Know This Much Is True, had been decked out to look like a 1990s design with the appropriate cars of the era. In addition to the numerous treasured vehicles, the fire also engulfed film equipment and the dealership, which burned to the ground. Fortunately, no one was injured in the fire, and a full link, a link to the full article can be found at readthedriven.com. Well-heeled Porsche files need to mark this year's Monterey Car Week on their calendars as auction house R.M. Sotheby's will be auctioning the oldest surviving Porsche, a 1939 Porsche Type 64. The sale will be held August 15th through the 17th. Motor Authority reports the first car to carry the Porsche name was the Type 64, of which just three were built between 1939 and 1940. The one going up for sale is the third built and the sole surviving example. Known officially as the Type 64 60K10, the cars were endurance racers originally designed to compete in the 1939 Berlin to Rome race, which was canceled due to the onset of World War II. This particular Type 64 was raced quite successfully after the war with Austrian Otto Maffei behind the wheel. The Type 64 was derived from the precursor to the Volkswagen Beetle, and it was constructed by or designed by Ferry Porsche using aircraft and aluminum construction. The Type 64 was restored by Pininfarina founder Batista Farina before being sold to Maffei in 1948. 
The Austrian then proceeded to race the car for a number of years, holding on to it until his death in 1995. In 1997, ownership changed hands to fellow Austrian Thomas Gruber, one of the most respected Porsche specialists worldwide. The car is still in a very original state. It has its original flat four, uh, air-cooled flat-four engine, and it's rated at 32 horsepower, and some of the original tools and spare parts will be included in the sale. Understandably, it's hard to put a price on a car like this. After examining the car, Porsche expert Andy Prill said, I've seen countless special Porsches in my career, but nothing like this. This is the most historically significant of all, and it is simply incredible to find the very first Porsche in this original condition. A link to the full article can be found on readthedriven.com. Values are soaring for many Ferraris, including modern examples, and Ferrari is launching a new program that could potentially add further value. Ferrari last week announced the Ferrari Premium Program, an official maintenance program complete with a certificate guaranteeing all required maintenance, including safety-related recalls, has been carried out correctly. No doubt the certificate will provide that extra bit of assurance for any potential buyers of a used Ferrari. The program offers special prices for a number of required parts and fluids. Cars with a Ferrari Premium Certificate will also have access to the Ferrari Classic A certification program once they are 20 years old. All new Ferraris will come standard with a three-year warranty and can be, and that can be extended a further 24 months. The cars also come with seven years of free scheduled maintenance. I don't know of any other car that offers seven years of free scheduled maintenance, including the cost of parts and labor. In addition, Ferrari offers extended warranty programs for major mechanical components. The cars currently eligible for the Ferrari Premium Program include the 456 GT and GTA, the 550 Maranello, the 550 Barchetta, all versions of the 360 Modena, all versions of the 575 Maranello, 575 Super America, 612, uh, 612 Scalietti, the F430, the 599 GP, GTB Fiorano, the 599 SA Aperta, 599 GTO, and the Ferrari Enzo. A link to the full article can be found on readthedriven.com. Next up, this week's special guest is Luke Chennell, Associate Professor of Technology in the Auto Restoration Program at McPherson College. We'll be talking to Luke about the growth of the restoration program, what changes the program seen since we were in school, the future of the collector car world, and is his hopes for preserving our automotive history and heritage. I'm sure we'll also touch on the 20th Annual College Auto Restoration Students Car Show and the awesome post-show barbecue Luke puts on each year. All this and more is coming up on Driven Radio. Welcome back to Driven Radio. Today we're speaking with Luke Chennell, McPherson College Associate Professor of Technology. Uh, Luke teaches drivetrain restoration, chassis restoration, materials and process, but he it, the more important thing is Luce hosts the staggeringly popular Post Cars Show Alumni Cookout, at which podcast hosts can be found cooking, drinking excessively, and telling embarrassing stories with the who's who of the collector car world. Luke, welcome back to Driven Radio. Glad to be here, Brett. Uh, I almost feel like I should apologize to you every time I drag you on here, but I'm not sorry enough to do it. Um, so, well, Brett, you you say nice things about me, so I can't complain. 
I say true things about you, and, uh, you know, everybody deserves to hear good stuff about themselves, don't they? I suppose so. It it generally makes me more popular. (laughs) Oh, well, uh, you're welcome, I guess, sort of. Anyway, uh, so when we were down there for the car show a couple weekends ago, I got a chance to go walk through, uh, uh, through the restoration buildings and see all the stuff that was going on down there. And it looked like there was a ton of new stuff down there. What's new in the restoration program? Well, you know, as cars get older, um, we start moving to newer cars. Um, so we've, we've really, I, I don't think we have anything post 1975, but you know, so many of our graduates and interns and students are going to work on cars from the 1960s and 70s that it's become a lot more important to do that sort of thing. Um, so we've really kind of, I, I wouldn't say we've shifted our focus away from pre-war cars, but uh, certainly the post-war car up until really the smog era uh, is now kind of the bread and butter of the program. The other thing uh, is we've really tried to to do a lot more imports. Um you know, certainly Italian, um, British. We've always done a little bit of German with Mercedes, um, but we're really trying to bring more of that stuff into the mix. And, and I think that reflects just the post-war market. You know, that was when those cars got popular. Uh, speaking of the Mercedes, can you tell us about the Pebble Beach project? Yeah, uh, sure, I can. Yeah, we uh, were lucky enough to find a 1953 Mercedes 300S Cabriolet uh, which in 1953 cost about $15,000. So, uh, it, yeah, for, for comparison, you know, the great hand-built American car, the uh, 58 Cadillac Eldorado Brome, those were 10000 in 1958. So, uh, Well, this is when you could buy a new Corvette under four grand. Exactly, exactly. So this 300S was a, a coach-built car. Uh, over the production run, they built around just a little over 200 cabriolets. Um, our car has a very good ownership history, um, was in pretty good shape. It was a good restoration candidate, uh, but it definitely needed restoration. So uh, we've taken it apart, documented it very thoroughly, done all our research. Uh, and now we're starting to, to get probably about halfway done with the metalwork, uh, repairing just various damage that it incurred over the years. Um, the other thing we've done is to actually start doing the upholstery. Um, I rebuilt the rear axle with some help from some outside specialists. Actually, I shouldn't say that. Students have done all the work, um, but we've done that with with help from outside specialists. Uh, and then we're working on the engine and just making progress in general. So, What is the ultimate goal with the Pebble Beach Project? So the goal of the project is to compete at Pebble Beach uh, in our class. And so in 2022 or 23, um, we will take the car out there and, and hopefully try to get an award. So if no matter what, finishing will be a major award. So, And that, uh, it's, that seems to uh, uh, convey the idea that student – work levels that their uh, their work product is capable of competing at Pebble Beach? Well, I mean, our graduates do. So really, you know, we need to bring them to that level when they're students. And this car is, I mean, all our cars are very well done. Um, and this car is just another illustration of that. So, 
Uh, we're speaking today with Luke Chennel. He's the Associate Professor of Technology in the uh, Auto Restoration Program at McPherson College. Uh, Luke, what are your hopes for the future as it pertains to cars and preserving their history? Well, I think my hopes have largely become realized. Um, when I started this and uh, got my degree, I, I became really fascinated with cars as cultural and historical objects. I think there's been a great recognition of that that's occurred over the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, and particularly, you see that with the rise um, of preservation class cars um, and also just the respect that people have for things that are fairly common and, and the stories attached to them. Um, provenance and stories, importance, you know, historical knowledge of cars has only gotten, I think, considerably better over the last 10 to 15 years. And my hope is that it'll continue. Um, I like restoring cars. I enjoy the mechanical bits of them. And I, I think that's what the fun part is. But I think I also am sympathetic to cars that are incredibly original, even if they're not in the best condition. And I, I see a lot more of that coming around the bend. So in your opinion, what makes an automotive historian? Well, speaking as a trained historian, uh, <laughs> as the historian in the room, um, you know, history has had this interesting kind of uh, dynamic in that the American historical profession really for a long time has been a competition between those with formal academic training and then people who write and who do all of the things that trained academics do, uh, but, you know, don't have the, the letters behind their name. And so really, you know, to be an automotive historian, I think, is to have a deep understanding of the cultural importance of cars and to understand not only the technical history, but the social history and the uh, the kind of dynamics in which way in which the car has shaped us as much as we have shaped the car. Okay. Uh, I, I think that's a pretty thorough definition. Um <laughs> The college seems to have gotten an awful lot of attention over the past couple of years, specifically the program, the restoration program, uh, and in just the the last couple of years, you seem to have had a flood of media coverage at the school. Uh, you know, last year uh, Tom Cotter was there. And Dennis Gage from My Classic Car was there. Craig Jackson was there. Tom Cotter was there again this year. Uh, Dave Kenny was there both years. You, the college has gotten a ton of attention. Uh, has that changed or how has that changed in, or influenced the enthusiasm for the restoration program? Well, we look at it um, in kind of eras. There are. It's interesting in automotive media kind of what floats to the top. Uh, because, of course, there's a constant buzz of things going on. And, and uh, you know, it's it's interesting because I can't stand car television shows. Just absolutely <laughs> despise them. Um, and, and so, but it's curious in that people really watch that stuff and pay attention to it. And the one thing I will say is that the car television shows have done us a great service in that they get kids interested in building things with their hands. That's true. That above all else, I think is their most valuable part. 
you know, they they impose completely unrealistic expectations on building a car, on the restoration process, on the modification process. And so, you know, we have to, at the school, we have to undo a lot of that stuff. But it it does light the spark. I like I the idea really that they uh, they propose you can do everything in a week. Uh, <laughs> right. You can't even source the parts in a week. <laughs> no, no, God, no, no. I mean, you, yeah. Um, so that that's been really important. As it relates to the college, though, I mean, every hit that we get um, in Hemmings or on television or any other magazine on this show, uh, you know it spreads the word and brings more people into the fold. And uh, we, we've really, I think, made a pretty conscious effort to not let the media change what we do. Um, we do our thing and let people come to us. And I am very appreciative of that approach. We've been talking to uh, McPherson College Associate Professor Luke Chennel. He teaches uh, drivetrain restoration, chassis rest restoration, materials and processes in the program. In a moment, we'll continue our discussion with Luke here on Driven Radio. Welcome back to Driven Radio. Today we're speaking with Luke Chennel, McPherson College Associate Professor who teaches drivetrain restoration, chassis restoration, materials and processes. And uh, unfortunately for Luke, he's also a friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, what are your thoughts on the recent fashion or fascination with barn finds, you know, cars that are selling, uh, going through auctions covered in dust and dirt and all that garbage? Well, funny you should ask. I wrote a paper on this that I presented at a con <laughs> You know, I'm an academic, so I have to write papers that no one reads. Um, so anyway, I presented this thing at a conference, and I, in that paper, tried to, to track down, really, the origin of the idea of the barn fine cars. And it's one of the more durable uh, kind of tropes in the collector car world. It goes back to the 1940s, 50s, when car collecting was really starting uh, just taking off. Uh, and I think back in that time, there was quite a bit of truth, maybe some truth to the idea of pulling cars out of barns. You know, yeah. when you think of a barn, right? You think gambrel roof, red, white trim, uh, farmstead barn. Yeah. And anymore, you know, we call these things barn finds and they come out of storage sheds and lockers yeah. and fields and wherever, but they don't come out of barns anymore. So there's something about that that word barn that just attracts the the that just attracts car enthusiasts. And I think my take on it is that uh, we love to be the ones who discover things, and more importantly than that, we love to be the ones who rescue things. Right? Sure. These are unloved objects, and so. The barn is like an obsolete piece of farm architecture, right? Nobody builds a a gambrel roof barn anymore unless it's some kind of you know no, event center or something. No, they're all metal Morton buildings. Exactly, exactly. So when we rescue something from a barn, we're pulling it out of the past and into the present. And that's why it's it's such a durable thing. And of course, 
you know, the auction companies and everyone else, if they can make a buck on something that's popular or trendy, they'll do that. Um, but I, I think that, I don't know, I find the whole barn find thing pretty ridiculous. And quite frankly, if you pull a car out of store that's been stored for 20 or 30 years in less than ideal environments, it's a piece of crap. You have to <laughs> recondition half the car. So I don't, I mean, I, I'd love to joke about barn fine cars, but. Well, if it's um, a true barn fine one, it's going to be p covered in pigeon crap. Yeah. For starts. Two, it probably has 13 families of mice living in it that have pulled all the stuffing out of the seats and done God knows what else. Yeah. I mean, the fuel system's going to be shot and you're going to have to, you know, repair the entire cooling system and to make them usable. Usually the interiors are shot. So, I mean, to make a quote unquote barn fine car usable is. I don't know. It's just not a very efficient way of going about things, if you ask me. Well, and but, I, I don't personally understand the motivation behind running th something through an auction that's covered in dirt and dust. And does it really hurt it to rinse it off? Well, I mean, the, there is a strain of historical argument that says that a car should be presented when it's most significant. Sure. So, so if there's you know, the dirt from the Mill Amelia on Sterling Moss's 1957 D-type or Absolutely. whatever it's using, that's important. But run-of-the-mill dust, who cares? It's just you know, a dirty car. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, as someone I, I heard once presented it, there's a difference between dirt, patina, and damage. And yes. so dirt dirt and damage should are not appropriate, and patina is. And you can fudge a little bit what patina exactly is, but... Oh, absolutely. You know, not long ago, we had Keith Martin on the show and we talked about ultra low mile cars and how driving them might ruin their value and the maintenance required if you did decide to drive it and all of that stuff. And I, th when we talked about it, we were discussing a couple of ultra low mile Grand National GNXs that had gone through Bring a Trailer. Um, in your mind, is it better to preserve them and drive them or drive them and restore them or what is the ideal answer there? Well, there are many motivations for being in the car world. Um, I think your and my motivation is the kind of experience of driving cars and taking them to shows and going to the grocery store, whatever the case may be with an old car. I drove and, my old Corvette to the studio tonight. Exactly. And so for some people, though, that's not the motivation. Their motivation is to look at the thing. You know, they... They, or just simply to possess something, um, which doesn't motivate me. But at the, on the same time, I I feel like I need to respect that motivation. So if that's your motivation, low mileage cars are good. That's not my motivation. And I, I personally find no value in, I, I mean, one of the great stories I, somebody told me was they were in an auction and had a new Hellcat uh, Challenger right when they, or Charger or Challenger, I don't remember which, uh, right when they came out. And so the guy was running it through the auction as a low mileage, you know, had six miles on it or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so one of the handlers at the auction promptly does a burnout and puts like six more miles on the car. <laughs> 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 so, so anyway, I don't find value in that from my perspective. And, and the reason, let me be more specific about that, is that I consider cars to be kind of a 360-degree oral, and that is A-U-R-A-L, experience. Yes, sir. You know, you can sit in them, you can look at them, but you can also, like, listen to them and feel the vibration. 
and the sensation of a car at speed is just you just can't match that any other way and so i for my keeping the past alive i think cars need to run and be driven and if there's some damage that's incurred to them in doing that so be it we can fix it well and lest we forget 99.9 percent of the time probably higher than that the car was built to be driven it was made as transportation of some variety it's meant to be driven and whether it's cars or tractors or even a, a, a press, if it's any kind of mechanical device, things that sit idle tend to rot. Yeah, I agree with that. And even more than that, um, you know, I, I've kind of been around people and been around a few more vintage Ferraris now. And those cars really, are, they're made to run. You know, those 12 V12 250s, like Below 4,000 RPM, they drive like crap. You got to run them hard to well, really experience it. And, uh, hence and the Italian the tune up. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. take it out and stick your foot to the floor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I've t been teaching more and more of my students that they should build things that are expected to be run hard. And if, the, you know, if you're not doing that, you're not doing it right. Nothing so fun as a sports car at full song. I agree. 100%. Okay. Uh, we're talking with uh, Luke Channel, associate professor in the auto restoration program at McPherson College. Um, now we're going to get into the good stuff. Oh, man. So car, the car show a couple weekends ago had a great turnout. Um, what are your thoughts on the show? What did you like? What did you uh, enjoy seeing? Uh, did you have enough time while you were trying to prep for the cookout? Uh, tell us what you thought about the show. Well, I just, I mean, as always, I had a great time. You know, some of my friends and I started that show 20 years ago. I've been to every single one. I'm the only person that ever has. And uh, it just, it gets better and better every year. I, I mean, I think this year, the feature cars were really strong. Um, I think just the overall presentation, one of, one of the things that I, I really love that the students have done is to incorporate the band uh, or bands on the show. because The bands you know, were having, excellent. I couldn't believe that was a high school band that started off playing. It's Yeah, it's remarkable. And really, you know, that changes the ambiance of the show. It's just having that live, those live horn music, live jazz just really, really ups it um, 100%. And so, um, yeah, I just get blown away by everything. And, and the, the amazing thing is it's the students who do it. I don't do anything. You know, I, I show up. I bring stuff out, and that's it. And then no, I walk the, away, and I enjoy. The students work their tails off to put on that show. It really is a quality production beginning to end. Uh, Absolutely. One of the things that was really cool was seeing Will Posey back there this year because he was – in the class that started the show, but he was gone before the show was put on, or he was gone when the show was put on. And yeah, yeah. the fact that he got to come back and he got to bring that super cool Ford with him, man, that was so neat to see him there. And he really yeah. got a kick out of it, I think. I Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's one of the most rewarding parts of being here long-term is that you get to see things like that. You get to see people, young people who are talented grow into older people or middle-aged people who are even more talented and build more awesome stuff. 
so I just, I, again, I just get blown away by what people are capable of at this place. All right. We're going to run through some of the, uh, the really cool cars that were at the show, uh, starting with the feature cars. Uh, your thoughts on that 1914 Peugeot L45 Grand Prix racer? Well, I was just blubbering. I just couldn't <laughs> speak. I just, I was at a loss for words when I saw it because I've, I mean, I consider myself, I am not a, a bona fide Miller historian, but I consider myself somewhat of a Miller Offenhauser nut. And to see the car that inspired not only the Miller Offies, but really every substantial racing engine from 1914 on, it, it just, it left me speechless, and that's all I can say. It was and then, stunning. And then related to that car, the other one that was there was the Novi. And that's, see, that's what I was going to ask you about, that 46 Curtis Novi Indy car. Yeah, and so, you know, right there are the bookends, really, of that racing engine design. That Those are the two, that really, the beginning and the end of the dual overhead cam, hemispherical combustion chamber, uh, you know, designs, and there they are sitting right as a pair across from each other. Well, with those um, two, we really have to give credit where credit is due. We have to take our hats off to Aaron and the guys from Brumos Porsche for bringing those up. Yeah, and very, I, very cool stuff. I spent I don't know how much time bending Dan Davis's ear from Brumos about those cars and all things Miller, and he was just a great showman, a great sport, and I really, really appreciate. Well, and um, to, all the time and effort they spent to get those things here. And to throw his name out one more time, Ped did get some rather exceptional pictures of those. And we're going to run a piece with all of Ped's photography on uh, Read the Driven this week. So I look forward to it. Oh, very cool. And most of them have your house in the background. <laughs> <laughs> that was really wild to pull up to your house and see that uh, Peugeot sitting in your front yard. And I'm thinking... Who did he have to bribe to get that thing here? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I was beside myself when that happened. Okay. So. Along with the Peugeot and the Curtis, uh, how about the 52 Ferrari 212 Vignali, uh, that thing? Oh, my. Looked like, looked like a, uh, uh, Volvo P1800. That a little bit, a size. little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It was just an interesting design study, um, you know, those early 50s Ferraris, I've learned, are really just kind of coach-built trucks. Yeah. And uh, they're with, a, of course, an amazing engine. I mean, the Lev Prey. Well, Enzo didn't engine. think that much of his customers, so. Well, yeah, I mean, he didn't really care, but <laughs> care about them. But, <clears throat> but yeah, the fascinating car to look at. Of course, uh, presented very well. Um, just, just an interesting oddball Ferrari was what I thought of it. Okay. Along with those, the 70 uh, Hemi Cuda, that orange hard top that was there. Oh, I missed that. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I, no, it was Craig Jackson's car. Great car. Absolutely. Well, it, it, it was a very pretty car, but man, considering the company it was in, that's some heavy duty, yeah. uh, that's some heavy stuff there. Uh, did you get a chance to see the little black three, Porsche 356 Speedster? 
Absolutely. That was a very well done little car. Um, really, really enjoyed that thing. I, I saw it in the cruise in on Friday night actually spent. Well, and right. I very rarely, very rarely do I spend time with Porsches. And I, I looked that car over pretty good. Well, and right down from that, just a couple of slots was the other one that I fell in love with. And I don't even like the color green, but it was that light green 911 RSR replica. Hmm. And that thing was gorgeous. Oh, was my. It? Yeah. And then uh, the last but not least, certainly not least, uh, the 32 Ford Coupe that Will Posey brought with him. Yeah, that was absolutely, you know, I, again, I'm not, I've never been much on street rods, but when they're that well crafted, you just can't help but admire that sort of thing. I mean, the, the amount of time and attention to detail and just execution in general. Uh, you just have to admire that. Oh, Will did an outstanding job on that car. And even with the, did you happen to notice uh, with the brake and gas and clutch pedals, the levers that he had were all high polished chrome? I miss, indeed, I missed that. Oh, man, he just did an outstanding job on that car. And Pat got a bunch of pictures of that and we'll have those up on the website too. But, Man, what a great job he did with that. That thing was outstanding. All right. Now, my favorite question ever. <laughs> I love this. Uh, we've asked you a question, this question before when you were on the show, and you didn't tell us the dumbest thing you'd ever done in a car, but you did tell us a fantastic story of being stranded out in the boonies in your old Ford. What's the dumbest thing you've ever done in a car? Well, so this also involves Model T because, <laughs> I, I mean, you don't put three tractor seats on a chassis and, and intend to do anything that's sane. <laughs> um, so anyway, this actually involves uh, what would become my future wife. Uh, she So down here, uh, uh, one of the guys, one of the faculty, uh, for a lot of years did something called he called the mystery tour. And so the mystery tour uh, involved going around and he would just find random stuff on people's in people's driveways, like bolted to their house, (laughs) anything he could think of that was just oddball and strange. And so you had to find this on the mystery tour and whoever got the most right or, you know, found the most things that he had found won. So this particular one, um, I had won the year before along with my wife. And so to handicap ourselves, we did it on the Model T. Oh, God. So, Lord. so at the time, I didn't have uh, the most funds. So that also meant that I didn't have the best radiator on the Model T. Okay. So the one I had had like, I got it off of a little buzzsaw in Colorado. And uh, somebody had, I don't know if they poked a log through it or what. <laughs> it had about <laughs> a hole about the size of, uh, I mean, they call it a silver dollar. It'd be about the size of about three silver dollars. I mean, oh, no. giant gaping hole in it. So when I put it together, I thought, I th- you know, I got the pliers out and pinched off all the tubes and soldered. And oh, you're kidding. <laughs> I got it to where it was kind of almost acceptable in terms of leakage, <laughs> but it still leaked. So then I tried every solution on the face of the planet that you could find in every old wives tale. So I tried, you know, the commercial stop leaks wouldn't touch it. Bars leaks, aluminum seal, they, there was no hope. So I'm guessing eggs, oatmeal. <laughs> so the first thing I tried was pepper 
yeah, it was okay. Kind of still would pour a little bit out. Okay. And I tried an egg and man, that worked great. The problem with the egg was it would really only last for about one drive. And then it, I don't know, just kind of go away. And then the thing would be pouring water. So in. now you got to carry eggs around with you. Well, that wasn't such a big deal. I mean, you know, you can hard boil an egg in the radiator at breakfast. It's, it's <laughs> copacetic. So, but then that inspired me on the breakfast theme. I tried some oatmeal and it just, I don't know, it didn't work all that well. But I discovered cream of wheat is like the <laughs> best radiator stop leak ever. So I would just go down whenever I was out with the Model T, go down and buy some cream of wheat and, uh, when it was, if I was on a long trip, you know, dump about half a cup in the radiator and it smelled like cream of wheat. You'd be going down the road. It was kind of pleasant. So anyway, so this mystery tour was about, it was, I don't know, probably 40 miles <clears throat> on a Model T. Quite a long trip. Plus we were, you know, going low speeds, hunting down stuff, crazy things in people's yards, you know, cement statuary. Oh my God. Um, all, that stuff I love. So now are you having to um, write down where you found this or are you having to physically collect it and take it with you? No, no, no. We had to write it all down. Okay. So Alicia, my wife, was she wasn't my wife then. I'm surprised she is after this. <laughs> um, so so anyway, she was doing the recording and writing down and all the hunting and everything else and all the trivia. And so we're roaring around and we, you know, stop and get some water for the car and some water for us and keep going. And finally, um, get going down the road, dumping more cream of wheat in the entire time. So it ends at a barbecue restaurant, as you know, all great car adventures do. End at a barbecue uh, restaurant. Yeah. And so we get the Model T is just hotter than hell. I mean, it's spewing coolant out, coolant meaning cream of wheat and water, <laughs> spewing it out everywhere. It's boiling, you know, gurgling and making all kinds of hideous noises out of the radiator. So we pull up to the barbecue restaurant, and next to me is this guy in a mid six, mid to late 60s, 911. And right as I come to a stop, the engine, you know, in great fashion, completely dies right as I stop. And then did not hit his car, but it nearly did. This geyser of cream of wheat and rusty <laughs> water starts spraying out all over the place. And so Alicia and I get off and look at the car and I kick it once. And then we went into the barbecue restaurant and had a nice meal. <laughs> it was great. It was a good time. But I, I have to say, the reason that I call that the dumbest thing I've ever done with a car is that if you consider your that your idea of a date, there is something very, very wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's beautiful. Yeah, I love it. It. Uh, it. it was a good time. And we won. That was the best <laughs> we won. Well done, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, we've been speaking with Luke Channel, McPherson College Associate Press, Professor of Technology. Luke can be found at luke.channel at gmail.com, on Facebook at forward slash luke.channel, and on Twitter at Luke Channel. McPherson College can be found at www.mcpherson.edu, on Facebook. Uh, that's too long. I'm not going to read it. And on Twitter at Mac College, the restoration program can be found at www.mcpherson.edu forward slash auto restoration on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash MC auto restoration and on Twitter at forward slash MC auto resto. Of course, all these links can be found on readthedriven.com. Luke, brother, 
that's that's another great story pal i appreciate it Uh, oh there's more don't well don't worry there's always more oh no i'm already looking forward to having you back and uh uh, let me know on that uh on that monterey trip man i we'd love to have you along with us oh we could have a good time oh absolutely thanks for being with us Thank you so much for spending time with Driven Radio. We love what we do, and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our audience and nutso stories from our friends. Uh, You can find us online at readthedriven.com. Follow us on Facebook at forward slash Driven Radio Show, on Twitter at Driven Radio Show, and everywhere fine podcasts are heard. I'm Brad Hatfield for Absent Vernestus. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Driven Radio.